Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, broadcasting from my home in Westchester County, New York. My guest today is Claire Coder. Claire is a founder and CEO of AntFlow, a company dedicated to producing and distributing freely accessible menstrual products to employees and students across the country. With many states still implementing a tampon tax, and menstrual products not being covered by food stamps or the government's WIC program, Claire saw the need to make these products readily available and free for all people who need them. Claire founded AntFlow in 2016, which, by the way, was the same year Claire was a freshman in college, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Claire, by the way, happens to be the youngest guest I've had on Brand on Purpose at the tender young age of 23. And since the spread of COVID-19, AntFlow, with Claire's leadership, began producing FDA-certified three-layer disposable masks in addition to their menstrual products, with a goal to donate 100,000 masks to hospital groups, including Ohio Health and University Hospitals in Cleveland. Claire, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Woohoo! I'm so excited to be here. I didn't embarrass you, right? No, 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 not embarrassing. Those are all the true statements. Well, I have so many more as well, and I think our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing from you today. So let's start with the first one. So you dropped out as a freshman, and you started AntFlow. What was the spark, or what was the idea, and what inspired you to start the company? I'll be honest, school was never my prerogative. I was always trying to get out of school. I started my first company when I was 16. I made buttons and magnets and compact mirrors. I sold them to all my friends, and then I got to start selling on Etsy. And I just loved creating and designing and selling and then seeing the purchaser's experience them light up when they received the product. So I poured all of my energy into that. And through high school, I was basically told that I was dumb. I'm I'm dyslexic. I never completed my tests on time. I got a 16 on the ACT, which it's out of 32. And so by all school standards, I was an idiot. But I found something that I could be good at. And it was rallying people behind a mission and being able to grow and scale a company. My button company, although it was kitschy and lovely for a 16-year-old, it was allowing me to buy my first car. I paid all of my teachers so that They would write me passes to leave school. Once again, trying to leave school. I paid my friends to let me copy their homework. Like this button company was my start to this whole scheme. So school was never for me. And as soon as I got to college, I was frankly looking for my next idea to give me enough energy and passion to leave. And so that's how I started thinking about my company, which is now known as AntFlow. And why menstrual products? And I love the name Ant Flow. I think that's awesome. But why menstrual products and why this particular company? I mean, you went from buttons, which is a very big difference. And clearly you're an entrepreneur and you're someone who can't sit still and you probably have an idea in a minute, but why this and why now? When I was at university, at the time I went to a startup weekend and a startup weekend is almost like a 54-hour hackathon. It's a global event. People come together and they share their crazy, wacky ideas. And then by Sunday, they supposedly have a company. So I went to my first startup weekend and on Friday night, I was a $40 Uber ride away from the university and I went to the bathroom and I got my period. And so obviously in dismay, I'm rummaging through my bag, trying to find a quarter because there's a coin-operated tampon and pad dispenser. And while I'm doing this, I'm thinking, this is so 
stupid. Like I don't have to find a quarter for toilet paper and that's a natural bodily function. And also who the hell carries around quarters anymore? So that entire process is obsolete. And so as I'm sitting on the toilet, I'm realizing like most women have to do when they get their, or when most menstruators get their period, they wad up toilet paper, they shove it up there and they keep on with their day. And that's what I did. But that experience brought to light the innovation that was required to redesign that horrible coin-operated dispenser and make it free vend. And we always ask if toilet paper is offered in public bathrooms, why aren't tampons and pads? Because they all respond to basic natural bodily functions. And so that was the premise, that was the inspiration, and it was the light that led to our company, Aunt Flow. Was that after the startup weekend or before the startup weekend? This was during the startup weekend. So during oh, the startup weekend, I wad up all the stuff and I go out and I pitch it on stage. And this is back in 2016. So now, and I'm based in Ohio, so there's not a lot of conversation about taboo topics like menstruation. This was before states passed legislation requiring middle schools and high schools to offer free tampons and pads. We started really supporting those kinds of movements. This was before there was that progressive, let's talk about period movements. We were on the forefront of this and based in Ohio. So this was kind of a quote unquote new topic for people, even though this has been happening for eternity. So that was my idea for Startup Weekend. And it kind of launched what then became my exit out of college. Immediately after that, I left university to start what is now known as Aunt Flow. And that led to the three and a half years that followed. I love how it's kind of ironic that it was at university that was the catalyst for you to help you think through this next idea. Yet you dropped out because you felt like one, it wasn't for you and it's not for everybody, but you felt like you had a calling. You felt like this is something that you want to put all of your effort against. And were you worried or had you thought through how to fund this? I mean, I know you had a great button business amongst probably other businesses you haven't even shared with us yet. What was your first step in securing funding? So the button business was really my first, I bootstrapped. I raised a crowdsource, which at the time was before GoFundMe acquired them. And I raised a $25,000 crowdfunding campaign to buy my first batch of inventory, which was menstrual products. And I self-funded. I was very scrappy. As soon as I left university, it was a difficult time because I left my support system, which was the dorm and my friends at university. My parents didn't agree with this decision, so they kind of cut me That's off. That's shocking. I can't believe they didn't agree with it. Yeah, your daughter's dropping out to talk about menstruation. Really great pitch. And so I was really alone for the first year. I got an apartment. It was a three-bedroom apartment. I rented out two of the bedrooms to people that I found on Craigslist, and they paid the rent for me. I made it so my rent was $1,200 a month. Each of them paid $600. So I lived there for free. And I shopped at Aldi. And I love Aldi still to this day. But I was very conscious of the cost that I was spending because I was committed to what I call changing the world one cycle at a time. But started with a crowdfunding campaign and continued on from there. You have a good relationship with your parents now, though? People ask this. We're rebuilding. I promise it's not therapy. It just struck me when you said that. It kind of like hit me in this, as a parent and off air, I was saying my oldest is 19. I have a daughter as well who is going to be 16 in June. And it just kind of hit me in the gut when you said that. That's all. It's just rough. For the folks that are listening, I think when asked this question, the most helpful question as you're graduating high school is not where are you going to college? It's what are you doing next? What's hard for me is it was the assumptive question. And I graduated top of my class because I paid everybody to do my homework for me. It was all just a joke. 
for me. But because I graduated at the top of my class and because I had this button company, everybody just assumed the only way to be successful is to get a college degree. But the hard part is that's not true anymore. And especially why would you pay $100,000 to telecommute into class? No, colleges are opening right now. So you might as well just pay $180 a year for master class and you can learn all of it for $180 a year. And also from entrepreneurship perspective, the only way you can learn is by doing. There's not a playbook. If you're really creating something and going from zero to one, there's no playbook for this. People have done it, but in different industries. And so for me, it was like, I'm a learner by doing and I'm a learner by conversation. So when I left university, I just started having conversations with other experts. I reached out to them. I built relationships. So now to answer your question, yes, I have a much better relationship with my mom and dad. I've really worked on it proactively. But during that year, it was tough love. Didn't talk to them for a year. And it was just really tough because everybody wanted me to go back to college. They always said, Claire, well, why don't you go back? Because at least you'll have a plan B. But for me, I didn't want a plan B. I wanted to put all of my energy into plan A so I had the best opportunity to make it succeed. Like, why would I spend 20% of my time making a plan B? And that's just 20% less for me to be able to give to my plan A to make sure that it was in the best position to succeed. So that's how I thought about it. You're so wise beyond your years. And I've been blessed to have a bunch of people who are similar, but you're the youngest. (laughs) Do you have siblings? Just me. (laughs) I was my parents' only shot at a degree. I get it. So how did you learn the business? Was it through Google and talking to experts? Because I've had a lot of people on who started very successful businesses, B Corps and or businesses that like yours, it's between profit and purpose, who knew nothing about bed linens, flowers, vitamins, you name it. And I'd say, so how did you learn? They're like, Google. (laughs) I am a true believer in surrounding myself with people that are better and smarter than me. I know that I don't have to find and solve all of the problems for myself. And so every week, I created my own fun holiday. I call it Snail Mail Sunday. And I have a list of my dream mentors and I write them letters. And I write people, I write my friends letters. I write anybody a letter once a week to help me build a relationship. And because of this, I'm now very thankful that the CEO of Gojo, which is the parent company of Purell, is one of our advisors. I have a massive network of supporters that back me because I asked and I wrote them a letter and I care for them and I write back. And so I haven't learned all alone. I've been very proactive in making sure that my network is surrounded with folks that I can lean on. But I also lean on Google. Shout out to Google. They're also one of our customers. So I love talking about Google. I heard you catch yourself earlier in changing pronouns so it's not genderized and you tried not to say she or her. Talk a little bit about inclusive language and why it's important especially when we're talking about the topic of menstruation. So when I was first starting the company early on, I had an intern named Mallory. And Mallory brought to my attention that not all people that menstruate are feminine. We used to call tampons and pads feminine hygiene products. So you see me right now. I'm not super feminine. Yeah, I have my nails painted, but I'm not super feminine. So does that mean that I don't menstruate? Does that mean I don't need to use tampons and pads? And then the hygiene product, that is also just so bizarre. A feminine hygiene product, that could be like a boob cleaner, that could be anything related to the feminine. So it doesn't call it out. And the best way to disrupt a taboo is to call out what you're actually talking about. So say it, menstrual product. And then in addition to that is the concept around not everybody that has a period 
identifies as a woman. And so how do you make sure that you're including trans people in these conversations and really making sure that everyone has access to basic necessities? I love that. I think that's so important. And I think it's a message that requires more universality as well, obviously. So it sounds like you're making a concerted effort as well in your marketing materials and in your language to migrate towards more gender neutral type language and more inclusive language. I'm actually very thankful that we were the first company that eliminated the term feminine hygiene products from our branding. And now there's been a wide movement to do that. And I'm so grateful because it is more inclusive. And I'm thankful that our company was at the forefront of that transition. Well, now I'm very grateful that I said menstrual products in the intro, and I did not say feminine hygiene products. And now I'm going to catch myself forevermore. So I appreciate that. So let's just talk about the business model for a second. And correct me if I'm wrong. So for every 10 tampons or pads you sell, you donate 10 to period.org. Why is this important? And did I get it right? Yeah. And so for clarification, we are a for-profit company. Just like businesses purchase toilet paper and paper towels, they purchase tampons and pads from us to put in their bathrooms. We have a free vend tampon and pad dispenser. We remove those coin-operated ones. We install our fancy-dancy one that's free vend. And then we have our 100% organic cotton tampons and pads that go into it. So that's the sell side. And we sell to everything, as I mentioned, from Google North America to Princeton University. Although I dropped out of college, they now pay me to have my products in the college. I told my mom and dad that they were very proud. And so that's the buy side. And then from a give back side, we understand and recognize that, as you mentioned in the intro, tampons and pads aren't covered by food stamps and WIC. And that is problematic. So for every 10 tampons and pads that we sell, we donate one to Period, which is a national beneficiary organization that distributes tampons and pads to people in need in the United States. And was that the vision from the get-go? I mean, I've had these discussions with all sorts of social entrepreneurs where the really truly successful ones have it baked into the business model from the start versus, oh, we're going to get successful and then we're going to start donating and associating with all these great charities. But it sounds like if it wasn't in the very, very beginning, it was it was very, very early on in founding the company. This is what you were going to do. It was going to be for profit and purpose. 100%. And I will say at the beginning, we actually had a buy one, give one model. But as we grew, we found that that model wasn't entirely financially sustainable. So we had to adjust. And I recognize that and I share that openly. So now we're a buy 10, give one. But now that we've grown, we've been able to make such a larger impact because we're not just selling a million tampons and pads a year. We're selling 10 to 50 million tampons and pads a year, which is a greater impact. So we're going to stop here for a very quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. So talk a little bit about manufacturing because I've had so many discussions, whether it's food product or vitamins or apparel and textiles, where folks are both searching for sources and manufacturers both in the States and outside of the United States. Can you talk about that journey where you had mistakes or might have gone wrong and what would you have done differently? And I know a lot of questions. And for anybody listening to start a business and they require manufacturing, especially when it comes to disposable products, what advice do you have? So it's a lot of questions there, but just Yeah, kind that of, was a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I have a lot of questions because that's the hardest part. I mean, you have everything. You have the vision, you have the business model, you have the intent, you've got social impact, all this stuff. But you still have to have a freaking product. And the product has to still be good. Just because it's free and or it has a mission behind it, it still needs to work. I'm glad that you bring this up. So manufacturing is tough. 
So when I was first starting out, I basically went to Target, looked on the backs of boxes and figured out where people were making their menstrual products. And I've done this for other similar products. I mean, it's a requirement to list where your products are manufactured, at least a country. And truth be told, in most of these industries, there's like five big private label, white label manufacturers for whatever thing you're making. It could be fake eyelashes to glasses. There's typically like five industry leaders that are doing the white label stuff. Yeah, it's nail polish, furniture. It's true. It's in every industry. Exactly. Exactly And then you just need to wiggle your way right in there. And the same way that I built relationships through writing letters, I did that with the big guys. So that's how I did it initially. That being said, I got burned a few times. And my dad always says, Claire, you're going to pay for education one way or another. I saved $100,000 from not going to university, but not sure that university would have taught me this anyway, but I was connected to this manufacturer early on. And long story short, through a whole series of situations, the person gave me, the person I was communicating with gave me their personal wiring information. So I wired them $40,000. Oh my God. Person's personal account. And then they left the company, obviously, and went out of their country. The company that I was working with is a reputable company and couldn't find the person. And so long story short, lost $40,000. And now I obviously, our whole team has very clear expectations on where you get the wiring information from, what types of payment precautions do you put into place, testing before you wire $40,000, all of those things are really important. So I learned that there's a takeaway for everyone. Wow. But I can see how Anybody can get duped by that, especially if the person was part of a legitimate company that you were going to work with and you trusted them. And was this individual in the United States or was this individual outside the United States? Outside of the United States. This was in Germany. In Germany. And where are you manufacturing now? Germany or Asia or? We manufacture in Germany, Asia, and then some in the United States. And how has COVID-19, I know that you've pivoted towards masks as well, which I think is incredible, but in kind of the ordinary supply chain and what you're doing in your business, how has COVID-19 impacted your business? So obviously as a company that sells menstrual products to bathrooms in public spaces, COVID-19 has really shot us in the foot. We've had a lot of struggles. I mean, obviously universities are closed and we stock everything from Princeton to Penn State and we stock middle schools and high schools. Kids aren't going into school. And then we also stock large corporations like Viacom and Twitter and Google nobody's at their office. And so I started recognizing this trend early on, early March, and getting some murmurs of how big this could be. And we called all of our customers. A lot of them are on recurring. We called all of them and said, hey, we recognize that things are going to be changing for you all. What do you want to do? And they all canceled. And that makes sense. We were there for them. We supported them. They were like, thank you for calling and being proactive. All of the vendors that they were working with were still going to keep trying to charge them. And We decided to not do that because we're here to build relationship. We're here to change the world one cycle at a time and we're changing the world. So we're not in this for the short game. So we built the relationship and I looked at our company and I, we went from multi-million dollar company to not a multi-million dollar company in a matter of 10 days. And per entrepreneurial standards, I adjusted to the situation looked at the resources that we had, and we're a class two medical device manufacturer. We manufacture tampons. We're an FDA-approved importer, an FDA-approved manufacturer. We manufacture pads. We have relationships, deep relationships 
with facilities directors and HR directors from across the country because we sell into their bathrooms. And so we looked at the things that we had instead of the things that we didn't have. Obviously, things we didn't have were very clear. We didn't have any customers that were going to pay us. So forget about that. Let's think about the things that we do have. And that was those resources. And so we retooled our pad production to make into three-ply masks. And we started manufacturing three-ply masks. And that started at the mid-March. And now we've manufactured over 8 million masks and distributed those masks across the country, building deeper relationships with our customers because they need access to these products. And obviously, from a business standpoint, we've onboarded new customers too, which has been remarkable. And with this too, our goal is still to give back. So as you mentioned earlier on, we're donating 100,000 masks to hospitals in need. And in addition to that, we're looking about how we can still be a long-term partner. So we did roll out our sister company from Aunt Flow to Workflow, keeping things flowing. (laughs) (laughs) And the Workflow brand, the best link for that is ppestory.com. And now we've rolled out additional PPE products. So we have masks and liquid disinfectant and sanitizer and all locally, sustainably sourced and manufactured. Did you say that you've made 8 million masks so far? Yeah. (laughs) Basically, I haven't slept in at least three weeks. I'm going to sleep eventually. Wow. That's tremendous. Well, you have the energy of someone who has been well-rested and the clarity and the focus. So whatever you're doing, just stay with it. It's fine. 8 million masks. That's incredible. And how many people do you have in the company? We're a mighty team of seven. Actually, we're technically a team of six. (laughs) And then we have two part-time. All in the great state of Ohio, or are you distributed? Right here in Columbus, Ohio. In Columbus, Ohio. Amazing. Have you ever pursued or would you ever consider doing a direct-to-consumer model as well? From a mask and PPE and sanitizer perspective, those products are available to people that need them. So if an individual is listening and needs masks or needs sanitizer, that's all available at ppestory.com. And just like our core mission of making sure everyone has access to basic necessities, that same holds true for our PPE. From a menstrual product perspective, we aren't direct-to-consumer. The primary reason for that is there's a lot of direct-to-consumer brands for tampons and pads, and we know facilities really well. And so that's what we're fully focused on. No, I think that makes sense. I just had to ask because as you become even better known, even though I think you've already made such incredible inroads, there could be some demand as well at some point. So my only advice there is never say never, obviously. Oh, yeah. And people are buying our bulk cases now because everybody's hoarding. So we manufacture in large bulk and we thought nobody was going to buy a case of 500 pads, but now they are. So they're available still on Amazon. Well, that's funny you say that because I was just going to ask, you don't need to be a company to necessarily go on Amazon and buy your product. I could just do it if I wanted to. I mean, I have an EIN, obviously, and I could use that. But there's a way for me to, if I wanted to buy menstrual products from you directly, I could. Yeah. And they're pretty darn good. I'm sure they are. You sound like somebody who is also a perfectionist and you want to get things done right. And that's good because that's a very important hallmark of a successful entrepreneur, especially a social entrepreneur. You mentioned toilet paper before, and I think it's an interesting analogy and unfair and unjust. And you're right. You know, if you have free toilet paper, why can't you have free menstrual products and access? Did you see and has the industry seen as great a run on menstrual products as they had toilet paper and paper towel? People are going through phases of hoarding. So we have, just to give you some numbers, from 
February to March, we saw a 300% increase of sales online. And our online sales are all direct to consumer. While I mentioned we don't necessarily do direct to consumer, they can purchase on our website or on Amazon. That's direct to consumer. That's incredible. That's just crazy. And you're right. I think everything does go in phases. And some of it's also up and down with news cycles and states opening and reopening. And when you get back to your core business, what do you think will change forever in your business post-COVID? So our core business is making sure everyone has access to basic necessities. That's our core business. And what we now know with Workflow, our sister company to Auntflow, those basic necessities are expanding. So while tampons and pads were our initial basic necessity that was often overlooked, now our new basic necessity is masks and it's sanitizer and it's these additional products to make sure that people feel safe and that they're also healthy in their workplace. And so I think what's changing is a new definition of what a necessity is and what that looks like in the workplace. And the gross inequality or lack of access for certain underserved populations and making sure that you stay focused on that. 100%. And I think that the masks is a clear demonstration. What has been happening is we don't recognize. So oftentimes, well, with masks, they were like, only hospital workers get masks, which makes sense. If you're working in a hospital, you definitely need a mask. But there's Cardinal Health that are manufacturing solely for the hospitals. And then they forget about our delivery men, the UPS driver, your FedEx driver, they're not getting access to a mask or the immune compromise that are individuals that now can't go to the grocery store because they're immune compromised. So when we think about access to basic necessity, once again, we are serving these overlooked, underserved populations that might not have access unless it was for us. And so that's what we think about too, when we think about how do we serve populations that are overlooked, both from a menstrual product space and then also from a PPE and mask space? Can you talk a little bit about, I mentioned it earlier in the intro, this notion of, and it's not even a notion, it's reality of a tampon tax in that products specifically for women, whether they are menstrual products or even things like deodorant, they tend to, and this is true, I can't cite anything, but I'm happy to if anybody wants to email me some sort of irate email, they tend to trend higher. They tend to be more expensive than products for men. And do you think that menstrual products need to be as expensive as they are even for consumers in the direct-to-consumer model? Don't you think that there's probably room to bring those costs down as well? Now that you've had this experience in manufacturing, or is the cost the cost and that's just the cost of doing business and it gets passed on to the consumer and everything I'm saying is not right? There was a lot there. I'll first take this quote-unquote tax on menstrual products. And as a woman, and a female founder, I have a hot take on this. And this is I bet. Claire's personal opinion, not necessarily our company opinion, although we don't really make comments about the tampon tax. But here's the skinny. I think that this whole tampon tax, like pink tax thing, is entirely misbranded. When we think about what items are taxed and what are not, we think about it the same way as toilet paper. If we're equating tampons to toilet paper in the bathrooms, we should also think about that same way with taxes. And if toilet paper is taxed, which it is in the majority of states, tampons and pads should be taxed as well. And it's not women versus men with this. It has nothing to do with this. At the end of the day, the problem is I can pay the extra 10 cents on my case of tampons. But they still are not covered by WIC and food stamps. So the people who need it most are, once again, overlooked and underserved. 
And what's happening when we think about our government is you have to come to some compromises. But what happens is, is once they eliminate this tax on menstrual products, now it's even harder for people to come back and say we need them covered by WIC and food stamps because they're like, well, we just lost the $50 million. Or it's even harder for states to pass legislation requiring middle schools and high schools to offer free tampons and pads in their bathrooms because they're like, well, we just lost the $50 million that you advocated to get rid of the tax. And that's problematic because we found that by offering free tampons and pads in the school bathrooms, it increases attendance amongst young girls by 2.4%. And that is phenomenal. And I would be happy to pay that tax if I knew that my girls in the schools or people in the schools who needed access to menstrual products could get it. And so I think that that's what's really misconstrued about this concept around the luxury tax. Toilet paper is taxed too. It's misbranded. And so that's my personal opinion. And I think that it's a little bit different than what the media is portraying. And there's a lot of big brands that have been pressing this, which is some movement is good movement. It's definitely bringing to light menstruation in general and moving the conversation forward around menstruation. But that's the general perspective around the tax. I think that's an interesting perspective. And I like how you connect all the dots because like you said before, whether it's WIC or food stamps, you can't ask for a break in one area and then try to ask for accessibility and for breaks in another area because it's all part of the same kind of ecosystem. So I hadn't thought of it quite like that. I think that's really interesting. Now, do you still have, I guess that button company, was that called, there's a badge for that? It was, yes. (laughs) Now, did you shut down that company once you started? You call it Aunt Flow. I'll call it Ant Flow. That's just the difference of in New York, we say Ant. But did you do that because you just needed to have clear headspace to focus on one thing? Well, I actually did it because I had this whole setup for all my buttons and what university makes you do, at least Ohio State, when you come to campus, you can't have a car and you have to live in a dorm, which was pretty restrictive for what company I was trying to run, which is very manual labor. And I drove around and delivered orders. So there is a lot of restrictions to that. So it was actually kind of ironic that going to college made me force my business closed. But I will say, I do still have my two button makers, my very two first original button makers, and we use those button makers at our office to sometimes make fun swag. That's cool. I like that. So five years from now, where do you see yourself and where do you see AntFlow and Workflow? Is it possible to even think like that anymore ahead? My favorite question recently, we've been so focused on what happens after COVID. And I love to ask the question, I'm glad that you asked it, like, what does life look like in 30 years? What are your personal goals in 30 years? Because you had them before COVID. Why can't they still be real? My mission is, and it has always been, I want to live in a world where no one has to worry about getting their period in public because Aunt Flo is in the bathroom when you need it. And that's my vision for the world. And then in addition to that, now with this addition to workflow is, can we have access to basic necessities? Can everyone have access to basic necessities? How long has your business been operating right now? It's four years, right? Yep. We're past our terrible twos. We're toddling and waddling and we're walking now. I think that's always a fair analogy. I use that all the time. What would you have done differently if you had to start today? Forget about the COVID-19, just for a second to your point earlier. Were there things you would have done differently? Oh my goodness gracious, yes. (laughs) So many things that I would have done differently. What are the top two, the two biggest ones you would have done differently? I'm an only child, as I mentioned, and my 
standard has always been I can do everything by myself. While my parents were loving, it was in a different type of way and I didn't see them much, so I had to grow up fast. And I leaned on my own self to make things happen, to make my own dinner, to do everything. I didn't have micromanaging parents. They weren't around. The hard part, while that's a benefit when you're first starting a company, you can't do everything by yourself. I learned or things start failing. And so now through this process, I am focusing much more on my team and how we can all work together to move the mission forward faster. That's fair. I think it's something that a lot of leaders and mad geniuses suffer from, which is your intent is to collaborate, your intent is to delegate, but the way you're wired is to, if someone else isn't doing it, I'll just do this myself. You just try to take on, and there's a certain point you just can't scale that way. And it's not good for your mental health or your physical well-being or all those other reasons as well. But that's challenging, especially when you're so passionate about something. The other thing that I had to learn was nobody will care nearly as much as I do. Never. No one will ever care nearly as much as I do. They'll want to. They'll be passionate. but. As founders, you live in this unique world where like moving to masks, I have a team of six. I was convinced that I wasn't going to have to furlough anyone. And I was convinced that nobody was going to have to be let go. And so I didn't sleep for three days. I worked really, really hard to make it all happen. And that's like this next level of insanity of like, that's how much I want it to work. That's how committed I am. And so I think that that's just a different level that a founder has rather than a fifth employee, or even a second employee. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch the special on Bill Gates on Netflix. I haven't. Tell me. It's incredible because he rarely gives a whole lot of interviews, although he's been speaking now more than ever because he's done so much in terms of infectious disease and pandemics. And he's always kind of this like soothing voice of reason. But the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is an incredible organization. But basically, it's a very short series where it's kind of, I think it's called Inside Bill's Brain or something like that. And one of the things he points out is both an asset and a liability is he was able to build Microsoft and then ultimately pass along so much of his wealth for greater good and greater efforts around the world through the foundation because he was so fanatical. That's the word he used. And that obviously can go both ways. It's kind of a double-edged word, but the spirit of being fanatical is what you're talking about. You have to be solely focused on success. Not winning, it's a difference, but success and performing against the vision and what you wanted to accomplish. And when it's not working, you pivot and you figure it out. And I see that in a lot of people like you and entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs. And there's a point at which, and he has a lot of kind of admit points where it can get in the way when he had some difficulties when it came to things like monopolistic behavior and being sued by the federal government and not being nice, not playing nice with other competitors, et cetera, et cetera. He was almost blinded by that fanaticism. So it's a matter of just managing it and figuring out how to use it for a force for good. And that's obviously what you're doing. And I wish we could talk for another hour or two. Honestly, we're getting at that 40 minute mark, but you're such an interesting person. And I can't wait to continue to talk to you because I feel like Every year for you is like 10 years because you're 23 and you've accomplished so much. I mean, hopefully I'll be around when you're like 40 or 45 because this is just the beginning, I think, for someone like you. And I love the spirit. I love the focus. I love the fact that you are able to pivot so quickly amidst COVID-19, again, for both purpose and profit and understanding the juxtaposition between the two. And I hope that others listening today are inspired as well to pursue whatever it is they want to pursue, either inside their company, start a company, or just inside their life to be able to give back the way you have and to have that dedication and that fanaticism for good. So thank you for coming on the show. I really Thanks appreciate for having it. having me.
This is delightful. And one last thing, if you can just, so it's ppestory.com for personal protective equipment. And what is the website for Ant Flow products if a consumer wanted to buy products directly? The easiest way is probably just typing in Ant Flow, A-U-N-T-F-L-O-W on Amazon. But also our website is goantflow.com. Awesome. Thanks so much. And I wish you and your team the best of luck and the best success in the future. Thank you so much. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at The Bop Podcast and learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Thank you.